We can get so caught up in how we're seen that we miss opportunities to course correct and expand our views on the world around us. And admitting you made a mistake or that you changed your mind can feel like jumping into shark infested waters. Now these days, and I'm not saying anything you're not already aware of, but social media and reality TV, they fuel our critique for sport culture. We're hating on those who have made mistakes becomes entertainment. All the while forgetting we're just as flawed as those we're dragging. And I really had to check this when I watched season two of Love is Blind, but that's a whole nother episode. Now, no doubt there is a psychological projection happening when criticizing others who embody traits we despise in ourselves. And this kind of discharge of pain, it gets in the way of meaningful growth and change needed around how we see ourselves, others, and how we do life and work. So the process of expanding our views and self-correction involves connecting meaningfully with others' experiences and needs so we can see the world outside of our own experience. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. I love to learn and stretch myself. I suspect the same to be true for you too. And I regularly learn things that deepen my knowledge and either reinforce what I sense to already be true or help me shift my perspective to a new way of thinking and living. And sometimes I take in important new data that just rocks my world, which in turn activates protective behaviors like defensiveness and control while I'm navigating feeling disoriented and uncertain. None of those things I enjoy ever. And how I move through these moments rarely looks or feels graceful, especially because parts of me still resist the discomfort that leaves me feeling out of sorts when I take in new learnings, which has led me to this roundtable discussion on the unburdened leader with two colleagues who shared hard and vulnerable stories. Now, what started as a conversation in our DMs expanded into what you're about to listen to today. My first roundtable guest is Shay Bearfield, who is a powerful speaker and the host and creator of The Shay Show. Shay sees the extraordinary in the ordinary and causes us to see the same. She believes that when you speak about things that matter to you, you will invariably speak about the things that matter to everyone. She hails from Freeport, Bahamas, and lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with her husband, Matthew, and their daughter. And when she's not speaking or writing, Shay can be found watching all things reality TV or hanging with friends around a fire pit with red wine in hand. And I'm thrilled to welcome June Park back to the show. Along with his incredible typewriter skills and inspiring typewriter therapy that he shares on Instagram, June is a hospital chaplain, a chaplain for the homeless, a six-degree black belt, an ex-atheist, a skeptic, a son to immigrants, Korean-American, loves Jesus, and author to the book, The Voices We Carry, Finding Your One True Voice in a World of Clamor and Noise. 
And I really want you to listen today with an open heart and curiosity as Shay and June share some of their really difficult life experiences. And pay attention to feeling defensive or if you start to fade out or think about other things, that's likely a data point on something important being touched in you by their words for you to explore further with your coach or your therapist. And take in what is shared in this episode, not as a voyeur, but with humility and reverence. Now, please welcome Shea Bearfield and June Park to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Welcome, Shay and June. So glad you're here with me today. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it's exciting to be here. <laughs> I, I want to drop right in on just why we're even having this conversation. It was inspired from a comment I made on an Adam Grant post. And part of what he had written was that the people with the most potential are the ones who know they have a lot to learn. And I reflected, you know, how you can do those little like comments on comments and stories, right? And I reflected that reluctant leaders always catch my eye and that they're not chasing titles or power or the spotlight as vanity metrics. They just ask the right questions before stepping into greater responsibility. And JS, you slipped right into my DMs and <laughs> noted that you had always been that guy that you had to lead and added how it is amusing how we love watching reluctant leaders in movies and TV but those in power tend to despise them in real life. And so, you know, we had a lot more back and forth and then you brought in shade to the conversation. And so here we are today. So I'd love for you each to walk us through what reluctant leadership means to you. So Shay, why don't you start? Wow. I was like, Ooh, I'm going to get to listen to June first and then <laughs> steal. All this stuff. Um, I think I'm going to talk about it in terms of myself, right? So where I see my reluctance or the places where I haven't, and if I'm answering the wrong question, you just let me know. But I want to speak to the places where I haven't stepped up in full vigor, like I want to, or I think I should. So one thing, and these are probably some of just my own issues, but one thing I, I live a lot in corporate America. And in these spaces where, ooh, okay, I'm just going to say it. So in these spaces, um, white women um, do have a tendency to rise up very well and are, are positioned accordingly. And I have found them to be the trickiest to navigate in um, corporate settings specifically. And so the reluctance on my part isn't so much an internal one that I place on myself all the time. I had placed on myself before because I was still determining my value and my ability based on somebody on the outside saying I can do it. And what I kept seeing were white women who weren't as educated as myself, who were more snippy than me maybe, and like had been given the opportunity to sit in these positions of authority. So I have found the positions that I have lived in to have an overall reticence to let someone like me be in a position. So for the earlier part of my time in that space, I didn't recognize myself as a leader. And I was, this is very vulnerable. But I was like, how do I be like these white ladies? How, how do I, you know, occupy space? Because what I did not see 
of the white women and what I felt like I saw in myself, even if others didn't perceive me, there was no question of whether or not they should be there. They were like, yep, I'm the director of such and such. So I don't know if I'm answering the question that you want me to answer, but it has been only as of recent where I'm like, look, leadership is as leadership does to coin my boy Forrest Gump. (laughs) So I am a leader because I influence people and I do it with great intentionality because I am intentional about pushing the needle towards love and that we can make this world a better place. I believe that. So I hope that answers something. Yeah, and I appreciate that, Shay. Just a quick follow-up before we move to you, June. For you, the initial sense of reluctance was it was a given for those in white bodies, particularly white female bodies that you had observed, but that wasn't something you were feeling was granted or that you were even internalizing. You saw that as the bar, right? Yeah. And then obviously you, you got to check on that mm-hmm. and and circled back. And so I just appreciate that expanding on that reluctance, even from my perspective, it means a lot of different things from others. So, so yeah, I want to make sure I got that right. June, for you, what is, what is reluctant leadership? Mm. What does that mean to you? Yeah. I, I want to say first, I very much, I think there's a lot of overlap with what Shay was sharing and mm-hmm. kind of my experience and my feelings around that. And I think the ladders look different for marginalized slash minority and across gender, across many different uh, uh, groups that are not majority. The ladders, the rungs are going to be spaced differently. The The support's going to be so different. And so I definitely feel what Shay was saying about even the same amount of effort, or even if I put in more, somehow the ladders still look different mm-hmm. because many of us, and when I say us, I mean, uh, AAPI, uh, all people of color, we start in almost a deficit unfairly. So I think if I were to define a feeling of reluctance, I think that feeling of reluctance, the hesitation is born out of forced resilience. Mm. Because I know what the cost is of stepping into a leadership position and Mm. the almost iron-like blanket that is placed on me or, or the web that I have to run through in order to be heard. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to say, I work twice as hard to get half as far. Mm-hmm. And I feel like even with years of experience, even with, uh, you know, quote unquote, the credentials and academics and everything to show for it, I'm still that novice in every room. Mm-hmm. And add to that the layers of, he's a foreigner. How much English does he know? Does he really know our culture? He may be a spy. He's clueless. Add to that the emasculation of the Asian American male. And so when you put all these things together, the reluctance is born out of my experience of having to force my resilience over and over. Mm-hmm. And I count the costs and I know what it costs. So when I step into any leadership position, I already know uh, this is the amount of work it's going to take. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more than it should be. And uh, until the system in itself is rewritten, dismantled, reconstructed. Shay, you and I know, and uh, this is the work that it's going to take. Yeah, it it takes a lot. A it's lot. a lot of work. Yeah. Thank you, June. Yeah, I felt I felt that I felt Me those too. words in my body listening to that. I mentioned before we started recording, a, a dear colleague of mine had jumped into my DMs when I shared a post you recently shared about the need to deconstruct, (laughs) dismantle, 
and and kind of rewrite our narratives. <clears throat> he he's like, what does that mean? Because right now in the recording of this conversation, we're in a culture where words are getting weaponized. They're taking very important words and turning them around to shut down really important conversations, really uncomfortable, really scary conversations around power, around distributing it differently, mm -hmm. around shifting things. And so there's a power right now is trying to kind of shut that down saying, oh, you're just going to cancel. Oh, you're just you're doing woke culture. Oh, that's just PC. So I'd love for you both to, to speak to when you're talking about deconstruction and rebuilding and rewriting narratives, what does that mean to you as leaders and in the spaces that you are in? I, I can tell you what I think initially. To me, it's we use the words where certainly these are buzz phrases that we're using a lot, deconstruction, reconstruction. But I would say what it really is, is broadening what we have been discussing, broadening perspectives, broadening um, information piles. It, it's not like we're over here creating some new Frankenstein and we want to put that thing out into the world. It is, hey, there's an acknowledgement that there's been one line of story we have told in this country, and it's pertaining to white people. If it happened to white people or they experienced it or they were harmed by it, those are the stories we tell. Consequently, mm. though, by the way, other stories were going on at the same time. And so for me, deconstruction or reconstruction isn't so much a creation of a new narrative, it is being more broadened in the telling of the narrative. The narrative is a broad flipping narrative. It has held black people in it for a very long time. It has held Asian people in it for a very long time. It has held Native Americans here for a very long time, the indigenous people to this country. These are narratives that have existed. So for me, it is pausing. Now, for me, it's an issue of valuation. Do we value those stories? So now we're going to pause. So the reconstruction or the deconstruction, if you will, is pausing and giving value to stories that were concurrently taking place while things were happening to white folks. So to my point, reconstruction or deconstruction is something that every person should be leaping into because it's not making anybody smaller. It's making us all bigger. Yeah. How are you more crippled? when you know more perspectives and more experiences. How, how does that cripple you? I remember our daughter went to a language immersion school from kindergarten. She's fully, she's fluent in Japanese, reads it, writes it, speaks it. And when, and I'm married to a white Southern guy and I was so intent on getting my daughter in this school. It was like a lottery program. I was like up at three o'clock, making sure her name was in there like as many times as possible. Like, can I cheat the system? I want this. And I remember his mother, kind of looking at me like, why do you want her to speak Japanese? And I go, anything that lets her be able to communicate with more human beings, how is that bad? How is it? You explain that to me, how that's a bad thing. Wow. And so to the point of reconstruction or deconstruction, and I my, my emphasis on the broadening scope of it, how is it? Let me know if you can answer how it maims any person by knowing more of a story. How does that make mm. anybody? It makes us all stronger. Truth. I don't speak Japanese, but my daughter does. And it makes her life broader.
and I'm happy for that. But again, how is what I just shared with you making me any smaller? I just told you things that made me bigger. Well, you know what it you know what it is is my story isn't centered. Correct. Now, white folks love their story being centered, and 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 to, and and in their defense, they've come by it honestly, because your story has always been there. <laughs> so it's like how, how why would you not think it's kind of like a child? Why would you not think you are like right now, June's baby girl? I know she knows she's the center of their world. Why would she not think that? She is held up in love and care all the time. For her to think something opposite, it would that would be the strange thing, right? So when I'm saying that about white people, I don't want you to hear me just canonizing who white people are and dismissing them. But what I'm saying is white Americans have come by the ideology that they are the center of everything, honestly, because this this country has served them in that regard. And, and, and that's a limiting perspective. No, I, there's certain things. There's an ease that I have that I didn't know because I never struggled with it. Now, as a female, I could speak to showing up as a woman in the world in, in different spaces for sure. So yeah, before we move off on this, so June, anything that you want to add to to what Shay had shared about deconstruction, reconstruction? Yeah, you know, uh, I love what Shay said about how studying these hard, critical pieces of history bring about an expansiveness to our being. And it's important that we see that the end result is not more diminishing, more marginalization of anyone, but the expansiveness, expanding and the broadening of uh, our common humanity. And, you know, the piece you said about the reconstruction, deconstruction, all of that, I think what I always come back to, and at the risk, I think, of centering the person whose mind and heart is still closed off to all this. I, I, I guess for me, I always think of this in terms of bridge building because I, I'm always trying to speak in a way that it's, it's not, I hope it's not coddling, I hope it's not pampering, but in a way that is gracious and understands the pain of waking up mm. to this reality. History is hard and has been hard on very specific groups of people. And so, in addition to the expansiveness of what our broadening can bring, each person is going to have to come into a reckoning mm -hmm. slash mushroom cloud of well said of awakening to the hard history yeah. mm -hmm. of all our experiences, um, not just the ones that were centered throughout the history. And I want to be as gracious as possible to that. That's a hard reckoning. That is. And I, and I, and I don't want to center that because what we've been through as people of color, of course, the suffering, that's that's hard, that's hard mm -hmm. right? That's real hard. But I, I don't want to take away from, or at least I want to show grace to and compassion to the internal, I guess, unveiling or peeling back or even deterioration of ego that happens. Because when I came into the understanding of my complicity and my indirect or even maybe sometimes direct engagement with the systems that continue to perpetuate uh, these horrors. Is there any other way to say it? These atrocities. Mm -hmm. I was shook so badly. And I, I, you know, there are days I can't shake the guilt. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask those feelings of guilt, what can I 
now do with that? You got it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the entering of that expansiveness or the broadening, as Shay so eloquently put it, each of us approach this event horizon where there's a before and there's an after. <laughs> and after, we, we can't do nothing anymore. We can't ignore it anymore. And the people that I talk to very often who, you know, receive the things that I say and, and seem curious, like genuinely curious in good faith, they're like right at the edge of that event horizon. And I think that's a make or break moment for so many people. I loved what June said too. And I, I thought to myself while June was saying, yes, you know, like this mushroom cloud, this reckoning. And again, a very simple question, how are you minimized when you can hold more stories in your being? How are you minimized? You're not minimized when you can actually care about something that's not you. You actually are a better, bigger person. I mean, like literally. Uh, and I, so I think about the limitations of what inherently comes to you when you are the sole narrative discussed. You, there's so much you don't even know how to love, how to care about. And when you do meet that mushroom cloud, I see it so visually, the you on the other side of that, I promise you, is a more intact, bigger, expansive, fuller person than before. I, I Can I tell a quick little story? When I first married into my family, the family that I um, married into, they, um, you know, they're, they're white Southern people and, you know, they would all probably think of themselves as Christians. And I'm not trying to question that, but um, a lot of Christianity, you can be racist and it's totally a comfortable thing. They, they lay down side by side and they, apparently there's some sort of reconciliation. I don't know how they do it. I think you just have to escape certain things. But um, I married into this family and his mother was awful to me, just awful. I hated being around her. She was dismissive. She was insulting. She And she let me know through body language and words that she she knew I was less than, that I was not good enough for her son. And that I, I, I even felt like it was larger than just, I, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough, period. I remember going into a restaurant with my husband, his then younger sister, she was much younger, and his mom. And it was an, uh, a restaurant where I was the only black person who walked in. And I remember his mother walking in and looking embarrassed that I was a part of th the group. And she wanted a table that was out of the way so people wouldn't see this black girl sitting at the table. And th this really bothered me. Um, and I didn't know how to properly contend with it. Like Justice Sotomayor says, none of us come fully prepared and knowing how to contend with the situations that besiege us. None of us are fully prepared for it. And so I didn't really know what to do. I just knew that I, I didn't like how I felt. Mm. And after some time, I started feeling like the thing that she was dismissing. I literally started feeling like a dismissed thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I didn't just, I started, didn't, without intentionality, I started owning that which she treated me like. It's like, if you hear no enough, you start to believe you are the no. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So 
I started to feel like this thing. And I, I, I was just having one night where I was just kind of crying in the bed by myself. And I was just like, this is, I think I got to get out of this, God. I got to go back home to the Bahamas. I can't do this. I cannot do this. And I heard this very clear kind of understanding. And what I heard was, you could call it God, you could call the unit, what I don't care what you, I just knew it was a, gr- a greater understanding than I possessed in that moment. And it came to me and it said, every person who has ever loved her in her life believes as she believes. Her mama, her daddy, her granddaddy, her uncles, her cousins, every single, her teachers, her Sunday school teacher, every person who taught her how to ride a bike when she got fell down and got a cut on her leg, that person who bandaged it up, that person who bought her first patent leather shoes for Sunday church, every single person in her life felt as she feels. If she stops and accepts you right now, she calls every one of them a liar. And you are scaring her because you will unearth her world. So the reason why I bring this story is anybody whose world is unearthed because you are considering another, unearth that damn story. It behooves you to do so. The you on the other side of the unearthing will be better for it. But anyway. But anyway, no, but you you address the you losing community, losing belonging. It's amazing what we do, what we compromise, what we sacrifice in our own integrity and the humanity of ourselves and others for fear of losing that belonging. You know, and and in this training with Resma, he really talks about the difference between um, hurt and being harmed. And I think we lose, we conflate those two, right? Mm. We we conflate, man, my feelings are hurt. That stung. I'm feeling the the healthy conviction of change or the shame yeah. of the belief that maybe if I'm a part of this, you know, the, the mushroom cloud of holy cow, to I've really been harmed. Yeah. And to really understand that. And I think that's where it gets really noisy. And I'm I'm wondering in light of this conversation. What specifically are the trade-offs that both of you have to weigh when you decide to lead visibly? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, you know, sorry if I keep jumping in, June. No, no, I could listen to you all day, Shay. You go, you go for it. <laughs> I just think to myself, so the cost, no one wants to be disliked, right? No one. I don't care who you are. No one wants no. to be disliked. No one wants to be an active battle. You know, you don't wake up in the morning being like, I cannot wait to fight in traffic to, so I can get my daughter, take that left to turn into get to my daughter's school. No one, no one wants this. And I, and it, it's nothing that's unique. It's probably something that every leader or person who influences others feel. But at a certain point, your, your head is above the sand. And because of the story, that I just shared and, and the stories that we are all talking about, there are those who are with great intention and passion coming for your head because you're disrupting their lives. You're causing hurt, not harm. Like I was hurting my mother-in-law. I was hurting her. I was causing her pain, mm. but I wasn't harming her. I was actually helping her become a better person if she could hold space for me. And so 
it makes you more visible. It makes you more apt for people to come at you with the intention of discrediting you or 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 harming you. Um, so that's a part I think of the cost. But I would I have to always end on something positive. But also I have found that as though that is the cost, I have found um, that my people are coming to me. The rooms that I'm supposed to be in, they are coming to me. And those people create a wonderful, powerful barrier around my, my, my consciousness and my being that helps me navigate those landmines that are being tossed at me or that I'm coming upon with greater frequency. Is that making sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, visible leadership. I mean, just the image that it, what you painted, Shay, was the image that you're to become a target, mm -hmm. right? And so to really step up, I mean, I believe we lead all the time, however we enter a room, but to really visibly lead and put yourself out there um, is risking safety. Yep. Is, 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 is maybe an invitation for harm, That's right. not just hurt. Yeah. Can I, can I just name, you know, Shay, as you were telling your story, powerful story, it took a couple minutes to tell, and it was, I'm sure, a long and difficult experience. Hearing it, I was making all kinds of like faces just because, <laughs> you know, it was, it was so painful to hear. I'm sorry if I sound like I'm laughing. It's, it's yeah. nervous laughter, you know? Mm -hmm. It's that, it's that kind of, tra I, I've heard it called trauma laughter, where it's just like, yep, I yep. feel young. And my hands are sweating, and, you know, my face was in my hand, and I, this side is so red now, because I was almost digging my face and listening mm -hmm. to you. You know, as you were self-leading into those situations with family that was clearly racist, is there any other word for it? There isn't. Decades and decades, maybe centuries of racism, you know, you, you talked about being a target of, of that rejection and then internalizing at some point that rejection, mm -hmm. you know, where the no, when you hear it enough, you start to be, you feel like you are the no. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's two levels in which we do a lot of this work through leadership, through advocacy, through speaking. And that one, we are speaking against the injustice, but two, we are also going against the responses when we speak against the injustice, yeah, you know, and for me, there's a, there's the trade-off you were saying, Rebecca, is when I enter those situations, trying to lead in a way, you know, uh, or, or speak in a way that is hopefully informing, bringing about the education piece. And also here's my experience and a story. There's going to be so much backlash and pushback. And I, I almost sometimes, some days, <clears throat> I feel like I'm trading my mental health <laughs> mm. just to speak against something that's already affecting my whole being. And that's hard. And Shay, I'm sure in your situation, as, as you were sitting at the dinner table, as you were navigating all those racist narratives, you know, you were literally paying in your time and your mind and your mental space, your heart, all of it, mm -hmm. that cost yeah. uh, to be able to speak. And, uh, yeah, that's the trade-off that we do all the time. And I think I'm, I'm trying to balance what does self-care look like? What do boundaries look like? When can I fat from having to 
take in all this media, all, all these news stories and how much is, is it, how good is it to be informed? And at the same time, when do I know I need to unplug? And mm-hmm. when I am rejected, at what points do I pay the emotional labor and just move to the situation? I don't want to cause trouble. Or when I get rejected, I say no to that rejection and I put my foot down. Mm. And these are the tiny micro decisions we make every other second, you know, mm. and, and a, a friend told it to me best. This friend, she said, um, pick your battles and protect your energy. Mm. Mm. We're constantly negotiating those trades, right? The internal and external trades. And so that's not a, I think that's an answer case by case and even breath by breath yeah. uh, to find when we make those trades. For you, June, what, when you were listening to Shay talk about her, share her stories, there's something in your story that came up. Is there something that as you were receiving that, that came up for you? Yeah, I would say it's not the depth of harm, I don't think. But it, at least in my family, my wife, who's Korean American, uh, like me, she comes from maybe a family that is more quote unquote, well to do, and perhaps has more money and economically is different than my family. Her parents are still together. Mine are divorced. And at least culturally that counts against me, uh, because if I come from a divorced family, uh, what will that say about the family that I create? And so even I think now in some Eastern Asian cultures, that's still a bit taboo or, or at least that's looked down upon. And so when I married into Juliet's family, uh, there was some tension and conflict, uh, around that. And it's a type of, I, I, cause I know this is its own thing, so I don't want to pull from it, but it is probably a type of classism and colorism even. And I don't want to hijack that word because that is its own thing and it, that's its own diverse experience. Uh, but at least from what I felt, it felt very much like uh, there were preconceived and prejudiced narratives built in before I was even met uh, that made it, again, use that image, the web or the iron blanket that I had to navigate through. It was a minefield. And so, again, uh, Shay, your experience, the depth of the harm that was done to you can't even compare. Uh, but as you were speaking, pain is pain. Yeah, I mean, I felt a, a, a glimpse or a fraction of, of what you're feeling. My hands are still sweating. Mm-hmm. It was awful. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I can't imagine, you know. And, and earlier you said at the top of the hour, you know, talking about corporate America moving through that. I mean, it's all the same kinds of navigations everywhere we go. From the from the dorm room to the boardroom, it's always it's always the same kind of. <laughs> how do I step here and how do I step there? Yeah. And do I do I purposefully walk into this minefield knowing that it's going to cost to speak, or do I just save my energy for another day? It's a powerful boundary, though, having energy boundaries, and and having to navigate that because if we don't have the energy to show up, then you know we can't care for ourselves, our families, or have impact. But you both articulated the mental gymnastics and the frequency of evaluating and, and scanning and assessing that is a whole nother level for those who are not in white bodies. Um, but when I think of power, right, you, you, you mentioned in our initial conversation how the powerful don't value the qualities of others that are pushing back on the norms. 
And I, I had an experience, I was on a leadership team where we were really stepping up and trying to shake things up around issues that we're talking about in a, in a team. And I had a colleague text me and she said, don't forget to stand in your power. Mm. And, and that was, it was anchoring, especially coming, coming from her. She's a woman of color. And, and I'm, I'm wondering first, if you can share, I, I want you to share what makes you feel powerful. I'd love for you to talk about when you are standing in your power and what that feels like. Rebecca, can you, you know, you got that message from your colleague uh, in a meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also love to hear from you what it means for you to stand in your power. Well, for me, it was not to delegate it to the folks with the titles of who was in charge yes. of this team. Wow. And not to delegate my power mm. or the fact that just because they held this ta- these titles or this is how it's always been done. We knew that how it's always been done was continually doing harm real time. And and I was trying to help, you know, obviously my colleagues who were laboring immensely more than I was in this to speak to, you know, the, the team leaders on this. And it was super vulnerable and scary. But if I knew that my worthiness and my safety wasn't wrapped up in what they thought, then I knew I could stand in my power. And that's always what I do to regroup. And that's what I, when I work with leaders and work with my clients, it's not to delegate my worthiness and my safety. It doesn't mean there isn't going to be risk or that I might not get my ass kicked um, emotionally or more. Um, and of course, it's going to look different for me because again, I can, I know I can operate in a lot of spaces differently, but that was is not to delegate it and not to, not to delegate my safety and my worthiness and, and my power in general, that I wasn't like subservient, like, hey, you're the boss, you're in charge. It's like, no, harm is being done and you're complicit to it. And that has to stop. And I had to release some of those old ways of of seeing things. And it was scary and liberating. <laughs> All rolled in one. Yeah. So how about the two of you? How about you, Shay? When, when do you feel powerful? So recently I was driving to, I had the privilege of being able to speak to um, many of the freshman class at Virginia Tech. And so I was on my way driving there and I was listening to an old uh, Maya Angelou interview. She was responding to what humbles her. And she said, what humbles her is that she is loved beyond measure. And then she paused and she said that there is a great big being bigger than me who loves me, who thinks that I am incredibly special and valuable. And I am humbled by that love. And then she went on to say that when she thinks of all of the many black bodies it took to get her here, that that is a powerful thing. That is a powerful thing of people who had to live and not die to make sure that Maya got here when Maya got here. And then that's true for Maya. That's true for you, me, and June. So when I'm standing in my power, I know what it took for me to be here and you will not cut me off at my knees. Even if I feel like I need to bow, I will not be cut down because I am so connected to all of the brilliant forces that got me here at this very moment in front of you. 
And if I have to tell myself that story over and over again on the inside, I will. Probably if someone had to do a little cartoon of it, it probably looks like I have all these like ninjutsu forces around me, especially when people who are in my space, who don't believe in my power, who don't recognize my power. I can stand in that place even when you don't recognize it. I can stand in that place even when you don't value it because I know what it took for me to get here. So I think about that. I am humbled by how loved I am and I am humbled by what it took, who needed to live and not die for me to be here right now. I'm having a hard time staying in my chair. I wanna jump up. <laughs> Thank you for that word. Thank you. Shay, am I supposed to follow that? Because- uh... Oh my God, please. <laughs> You know, I, so I've done a lot of work in therapy, internal work, work with community, fellow activists in peeling back the whole model minority myth. And I don't, I don't think that's largely just a, just an, an Asian myth, but it, it was coined in, I think, the 40s or even 50s mm-hmm. for uh, Asian Americans. And the idea is that we're uh, quiet, passive, hardworking, keep our head down, all of that. And uh, come to find out, that that is the model minority myth is just that it's just a myth and Mm -hmm. that asian americans and asians throughout history have protested loudly have petitioned have taken to the streets Mm -hmm. have stood up for themselves and uh have been warriors have been and have had those worried against them i mean like yes yeah yeah (laughs) and shay when you said about all the people before, I mean, this chorus of all the people before us, our ancestors, all of them together, you know, uh, hearts marching together. The more I read on my own history, I'm like, we, we were never quiet. We weren't silent. We were silenced. And that's a big difference. And so standing in my power is standing in the power of all my ancestors and the stories before me and the road that was paved so that I could be here. And to recognize the model minority myth was a suppressive tool used against us, like many, many uh, tools and tactics of white supremacist forces and, you know, throughout uh, Anglo and European history uh, to ensure that we would be props and that we would sort of be uh, the builders, but never the leaders. Right. Mm. And what I'm learning now is no. And I'm having to say no to that all the time and unlearn it all the time. Mm. And that's a hard, tough internal work. And I've been saying that word a lot, but it is, it is very hard. It is. It's, it's not easy because these myths uh, are not, we're not only internalized, but culture as a whole, especially in the West still believes that myth and will do all they can with a death grip to perpetuate that myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise it means sharing power, right? Or even uh, giving up power. So, Part of my role and part of the the voice that speaks when I enter a room is uh, remember who you are and you're bringing all of yourself. Mm. And, and, and the person that you want to become is who you always, always were. Uh, who you yeah. were to be is, is to remember uh, before the outside world came in and said, uh, who are you? Yes. Before the outside world came in and told me who I was, I was and I am. And so that, that's how I want to enter the room. Glory. Can I say glory? Because that's what mm. that is. <laughs> that is glory. You know, I know that this, this is the privilege that I have 
records, historical records of my family, mm. you know, lineage. And I know that not everyone has that because unfortunately some groups of records were destroyed on purpose. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I learned in, in the last few years that my great grandfather, uh, Pakira, he was a revolutionary against colonized Korea, one of the leading revolutionaries. You know, Korea was colonized by the Japanese empire. And again, that's, that's a whole different thing to bring in. But I can say that my great grandfather, I mean, was one of the leaders of, uh, leading against fighting for rebelling against the empire. And when I think of that, you know, his blood flows through these veins. Mm. And I, I, I just think, you know, I enter a room and I'm, and I'm working so hard for people to hear me. And I'm just like, y'all don't even know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I don't say, I, hopefully I'm not coming up arrogant or something when I say that, but it's like, yeah. it's like, really, y'all just don't know. Y'all just don't know. I'm coming in, bringing all of that, all of that fire into this room. <laughs> yeah. Is that quote? I may come as one, but I stand as 10,000. Mm. And I, and Maya said it in that thing that I was listening to. I may come as one, but I stand as 10,000. And what you're talking about is that historical presence, the ancestors that are in you, what it took for you to get here, who you really are. That didn't sound um, conceited or self-absorbed in any way. It sounded like you are aware of the truth. And it's the truth. It took a lot for June to get here. Very precise DNA timing. <laughs> Very precise That's DNA. Not. I dig that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got, you, you got to stand in that. We have to stand. And I think part of power is, is not shrinking from that confidence, right? Yeah. She spoke to, she goes, a false sense of humility. Don't, don't pretend to be small because a false sense of humility is just affect. It doesn't look good. If you, <laughs> essentially, she calls she's bullshit like, to it. <laughs> yes. She's like, you're great. And know that you're great and stand in your greatness. Now the question is, what the hell do you do with your greatness? You don't sit back and just talk about I'm great. You recognize how great you are and you do great shit. Mm. But I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to have a false sense of humility. And and she said that is pure affect. It's fake. <laughs> so I, I want one more question about power because you both referenced this too, right? In the spaces that you work, the spaces that you live, you both identified that it's not always been pleasant, <laughs> um, to say the least. What about a time, maybe the first time you really were devalued as you stepped into your power, where you felt devalued and you were devalued because you stepped into your power? I think one of the issues that I'm still wrestling with, as we talked about entering the room and bringing all of ourselves, mm -hmm. that has been a daily work for me that is still not always complete. And I think I tend to enter a room smaller than I should devaluing myself as if shrinking myself will receive more acceptance and approval, right? So sometimes even before others may devalue me, I, I will self-deprecate in order to feel like I can, I can fit into a room. And so my, you know, when I did my chaplain training, this was probably about seven years ago. Now my supervisor shadowed me. And at the end of the day, when she gave the evaluation, she had a lot of good things to say, but her feedback was, she said, I noticed when you enter a room and introduce yourself to the patient, you give a very long introduction. And what she was saying was I would enter into a room and introduce myself to the patient as 
hi, my name is June. I'm one of the chaplains here and I'm a da 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 and I've been hired by Tampa General and I'm da da da. And I would say this long thing about my credentials. And then I would start doing movie references and references to pop culture because I wanted to prove that I am quote unquote American <laughs> and that they are safe with me and I'm with it and I'm like kind of one of them. And so, I, you know, I work at a hospital in Florida. And so you could imagine the sometimes the demographic that I'm with. Right. And, uh, and uh, my supervisor said, do you need to introduce yourself that way? And I said, well, I do that, I think, because one, it's a reflex. And two, I, I want the patient to feel comfortable with me if I speak, you know, and as I was saying this, I felt weird. I was like, as if I just speak English real fast, then they'll think it's, you know, as I was saying it, I was like, I've internalized all of this, right? And, it, and it's because of those, maybe not any grand moment of I was devalued, but all those little small moments of being devalued mm -hmm. rooms where I knew people were turning away and not listening or looking past me or looking for someone else to speak. But I feel that everywhere I go, not being taken as seriously, you know, being mm -hmm. someone without hopes or dreams or ambitions or anxiety in my head, I am just a prop in their story. And that's something that I've had to one, move against externally and two, a rewrite internally. You're having to rewrite it real time because the same narrative is being lived out, played, portrayed. And so the pull to go back to the homeostasis, the status quo mm -hmm. is significant. That's a lot of energy. That's a lot of labor. Yeah. In fact, um, if I can read this quote from uh, Chang De Li, who wrote Native Speaker, this was kind of an older book, but this is uh, the protagonist of the story. He is someone who uses his Asianness as a way to people please mm -hmm. and get people to approve of him. Mm -hmm. And this is the protagonist kind of giving his inner monologue. And uh, when I, the first time I read this, what I think was in maybe college, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he writes this, he says, uh, and yet you may know me, I am an amiable man. I can be most personable, if not charming, and whatever I possess in this life is more or less the result of a talent I have for making you feel good about yourself when you are with me. In this sense, I am not a seducer. I am hardly seen. I won't speak untruth to you. I won't pass easy compliments or odious offerings of flattery. I make do with on-hand materials what I can chip out of you, your natural ore. Then I fuel the fire of your most secret vanity. And the first time I read that, I was like, this guy read my diary or something? Mine too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how we've had the, that's how I, I could speak for myself, had to navigate in this world. How do I fight that? It's, it's an everyday fight. You know, Shay, I keep going back to something you said at the very beginning of our conversation. And, and June, you've touched on aspects of this in the places that you work and, and are just in different spaces, particularly around not just white bodies, but white female bodies have a hard time sharing power. And I know a lot of the people that listen to this show are on some place of the spectrum of the curtain pull back to the mushroom cloud <laughs> of, of, of this awareness process. And I'm wondering what you both want to say to those listeners that are really rumbling with this stuff and it, it different wherever they're at in their deconstruction or reconstruction 
I think I said they're in spaces where they're like, do I say something? Do I not say something? I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I don't want to lose my job, but I don't want to get yelled at myself. You know, all the things that their mental gymnastics they're going through, even in their privilege, even in their advantages, what is something you'd want them to know if you were sharing space in a room with them at the hospital, June, or in, in a business, Shay? I'm going to answer this. And then at some point, I want to go back to the question that June answered. I, I'm just still mulling that over. Thank you for that, June. I think I would want them to know that follow your peace. Like anything that we do, what it leaves us feeling after it's done, that's the real thing that that thing gives us. Whoa. Hmm. You understand what I'm saying? So I would say follow what you feel after it's done. So you can do the thing to preserve your job and not say a word. But here's the truth. How you feel about sucking in the words that were beating at the back of your throat afterwards, that's the truth of what that thing gives you. And that thing will teach you what you should have done. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to borrow something from a book I finished recently called The Wake Up. And, you know, I finished with tears in my eyes. Mm. And uh, I think one thing she said in there, there were so many takeaways for me. I I, I messaged her the exact number of highlights in my, in my ebook copy because it was just too many. I, I was like, oh, I think I'm highlighting wrong because there's more highlights <laughs> than that. Um, <laughs> but she talks about the difference between uh, comfort and safety. Yeah. And, uh, you know, comfort is a self insulation. It's, uh, mm. saying that I, I'm just going to be comfortable in myself and, you know, to use, uh, Shay's, I think language earlier, uh, it is to de-expand or have an unexpanded perspective. And many of us live in comfort, but safety is, is when you peel back the comfort or you enter discomfort of the hard history of the hard story of the trauma we face, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. you begin to think compassionately and thinking about others, about our safety. And, and this, this brings up for me, like working in the hospital, you, even the debate around masks, you know, oh, my <sighs> personal comfort, uh, I don't want to wear a mask because this, you know, two inch piece of cloth is bothering my face or can we think about our safety? Can we have, a, you know, I don't like masks either as far as comfort level, but I wear it because I care about our collective safety. And so as we're doing this reckoning work, I think we need to discern where are the areas of discomfort. You know, right. I enter that discomfort, but at the end, my well-being, my health, my safety, it's improved, it's better. And more stories make us better and more expanded. And to end mm -hmm. that, right, uh, it takes a level of saying, I am going to give up comfort because for me, it's been false safety. It hasn't oh. been safety. That's it. Yes, that's it. And I'm going that's to it. enter the discomfort and enter into real, authentic, honest safety. That's right. And discover what that is. Some people need to even just know what it's like to embody that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. What a word. Shay, you said you wanted to circle back to something June had said. Yes. The question where you were asking, when was a time that you, 
either the first time or most recent time or a time that stands out where you you were devalued in your power. You weren't seen in your power. I want to tell a story. I'm a storyteller, so please forgive me. And I would say that the point of my story isn't that we should have to do it, but I want people to know it is possible and there's goodness on the other side of it. So when I first got into this career that pays my bills right now, it's real estate. It's specifically my, I'm not in it any longer, but I was specifically in new home sales. New home sales, for whatever reason, it's a very white dominated space. Apparently only white people know how to sell homes. It's very incredible. And, And so I was a big disruptor in that world. And the only reason I know why I got hired, because I interviewed at a company who had the only black sales manager in all of Charlotte, but by the way, for that national builder throughout the nation, he was the only like DP or director of whatever. And he didn't hire me because I was black, but he did not not hire me because I was black. Because I show up like this. I am a black woman who phenotypically, aesthetically, I am blacky black. I'm black. I wear a head wrap. I feel beautiful with my head wrap. I like it. And I know that that's also very, um, very disruptive and strange in white predominant spaces. I used to always want to make sure that people knew that I wasn't like a black panther, which why? Who cares? What was wrong with them? You know what I mean? Like I, 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 because to the book, the quote that June read, which is, this looks like a book I need to read because I had been primed from early age when I came to America that three things immediately when I got into rooms of white people, make them comfortable with me, then make them like me and then make, and then allow them to see me as the gifted one or great. So it was like this three-pronged thing that I would go through. I'm going to make you feel comfortable. So I'm going to be extremely affable, self-deprecating. I'm not going to hold all of my space. But where I'm at in my life right now is my job is not to make sure that white people are comfortable. I'm not even trying to do that. But I'm in this space now. I, I had this job. And the company was purchased by another bigger company. And my then boss was was let go. So... Once again, I was back to being like, like the only black person and I, and this other company had inherited me, if you will. You understand? So I wasn't anything that that new sales management staff would have hired. And I remember it was being, it was so perplexing because I thought I make them comfortable. I, I make them like me. I, I, I show myself as great and exceptional. And I could tell that they didn't like me. And I didn't know what else to do because I, I'd done, I, I'd used all my arsenal, you know, like I've done everything I can to make the white people like me and they still weren't like me. So I was like, when you don't know what you've done to make someone dislike you, you can't, you don't know what to do to make them like you. You know what I mean? And the truth is I hadn't done anything, but why it was important for me that I'm telling you this is It was a time where my value was in question all the time. I could tell that they were just waiting to figure out how to fire me. So 
I was always like driving up to my model home, like Fred Flintstone in his car urge, and trying to get there and open up the door and disarm the house before the time that I was, put because I knew that they were just looking for the smallest infraction. And it was awful. And I remember finally saying to my boss, my then boss, like, do you guys, I actually asked this question, y'all. Oh my God. I said, do you see my value? May I ask you if you see my value? And this, his answer shows me what an awful leader he is and what a great leader I am. And he said, um, I could tell you a whole bunch of things you could do better. And then I said to him, should I, should I be looking for another like job opportunity? He goes, I would if I were you. Oh. And I was like, okay. And I remember I drove home that night and it was about a 45, 50 minute drive down this old country road. And I was just kind of crying and, and feeling weak inside. But by the time I got home, this internal resolve hit me because again, that, that larger voice, I was so scared because I am the provider for my family. I'm it. My husband has chronic kidney disease. He goes to dialysis three times a week. We have a, at the time she was a, a pre-pubescent little girl, you know, 10 and, and I'm just like trying to do it. So I'm scared. But by the time I got home, an inner working had taken place. And what I heard in my soul was, it's not their job to take. You will be there as long as I will have you there. And so I was able to go through the machinations necessary to feel you devalue me and never see my value. And I was able to lean into that thing that gives me my power, who I come from, what got me here. And I was excellent in the face of those who did not value me. And that was good for me to learn that. That I learned that I can do well without a home team advantage. You don't have to, I don't have to be home. The people in the stands don't have to be pulling for me. They can all be rooting against me. And in that space, when I dig into my power, yet I will stand. Mm. And I stayed there until it was time for me to go. And I was their most, one of their most successful salespeople. And at the end, they kind of had, I remember in our, you know, your reviews, they were like, we'd like to talk to you about your, and this was a moment that they really were trying to take my power. But that's what I'm saying. You can stand in your power when no one else sees it. Your grandfather can be the warrior that he is. And you can come from that lineage, even when they don't see it, you know it and you stand in that space. So here I was, they were like, you know what? You've, you've grown. That's some of, we, you've grown a lot since you've been here. That was their feedback in my review. And I said at the end of that, they said, well, what do you think? I said, and I was so proud of myself to this day. I said, I think you see me now. And they stepped back and I was like, no, I've, I've always delivered how I've been delivering. Sure, I've grown like you grow. I hope you grow in your daily life. But no, the, the stuff that you're speaking to, you just are now seeing me. They didn't know mm -hmm. what to say to that. But my point is what I could recognize is even when they devalued me, I was still able to stand in my power. And that's what that taught me, that even if you don't recognize my value, I can still tap into that value. Mm. Thanks for sharing that, Shay. Thank you for letting me. We have to be on our own team. You do. Yeah. Always. 
We have to be on our own team. All right. We could be talking forever, but I want to wrap up with a couple questions. I'd love for you to define success, what success is to you, and how is it different from what you were taught? June. I think a short answer that I can give is to pull Shay from your story, which there's pain in there and there's victory in there. I think success is so externally defined in measuring cups and arbitrary standards Mm -hmm. and based off of things that are classist and racist and misogynist and all of it. And I think I've had to unlearn a lot of those myths and be able to know that success is contentment within myself at the end of a long day or week or month uh, that I can say, uh, did I bring myself fully into the room? And there will be days where I, I will look back and say, you know, I didn't that day. Um, and maybe I sold myself short a little bit. Uh, but I think success can't be, uh, I walk into a room and I have conformed and contorted myself and carved myself into the image of what people will already want to see. Oh, I feel that Me too. Yeah. But I'm, I'm bringing in the whole imago day of, of myself. And, um, you know, there's a beautiful, I think probably it's now my favorite book of all time by Min Jin Lee, who wrote Pachinko. It is a historical fiction novel. It takes place over about a hundred years, uh, Korean history. I think the last third of the book, I couldn't stop crying because it was just such an, uh, an emotionally moving story. Um, but there's a scene, and it probably within context, this line, I mean, it made me weep immediately. But uh, this father's talking to his son, and it's in colonized Korea. And just a series of, of terrible, awful events have, have befallen this family. And he tells his son, um, you are very brave, Noah, much, much braver than me. Living every day. In the presence of those who refuse to acknowledge your humanity takes great courage. Mm. It, it Listen, that was my point. It takes great courage and it also builds something really remarkable in you. But I'm not saying that like I want everybody to go through the pain or the harm of those moments. But there is some some delicious yummy on the other side of that. To be able to stand in a room mm-hmm. that is actively against mm-hmm. you. And stand there in your power is both brave and strong. Yeah. That's success right there. That's it. Uh, uh, Mic drop. What do I have to add to that? (laughs) Is there anything you want to add to it, Shay? No. I I mean, no. I'm like, that's, I think that's it. Being able to be exactly who you are and not waver regardless of the environment that you're in. That means we have to figure out who we are truly. And not just regurgitate what we've been told. Yeah. And I appreciate what you said, Shay, too, because it's not like, hey, you have to go through the fire. That's like a justification. We have to stop avoiding the fire that in front of us so that our world is tiny. We have to go through the fires. And that's part of living. That's part of expanding. That's part of expanding, building resilience. And it's part of connecting and deepening humanity. So it's not just about I, 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 which you touched on also, June, right? It's it's the collective, I am living for we, 
not just my safety, not just my power, not just my needs, but the collective. And this is what we're in the reckoning for right now. And it's like happening before our eyes on small levels and big levels um, on repeat. Thank you both. I, I, yeah, I'll be absorbing and the echoes of this conversation for all, but I do want to wrap up with some little bit more lighthearted, <laughs> quick fire questions for you all. Okay. June, let's start with you. And I'll probably just kind of ask the same question and go back and forth. June, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? Oh my goodness. So I love fiction. And right now I am reading, I'm reading two books, The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories by Ken Liu. Oh, um, I've been into kind of science fiction and historical fiction lately. And so Ted Chiang is another author that I really like. He wrote Exhalation and uh, The Story of Your Life and Others. And one of his short stories was the basis for the movie Arrival uh, with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, which is a fantastic movie about uh, yes. communication. Uh, yeah, but there's so something good. about Asian-American authors, short stories, fiction, where they're just it comes from a completely, I mean, it does come from a completely different perspective and helps me feel like I'm reading in my mother tongue and my cultural tongue helps me to feel like this is my whole language that they're speaking. And mm. the talks about honor and the talks about fighting against assimilation, all of that. And so every story, his themes are very obvious, but I, I, I love that it's so thematically strong and he uses these, uh, science fiction premises and kind of he, he takes us back to the past with there's like dragons and stuff in his book it's so cool i just you know recently finished reading the wake up by michelle me junk kim and i am starting i'm really embarrassed to say i have not read this uh the fire next time by james baldwin yes. yeah so i am starting god sent noah the rainbow sign yeah. no more water yes. the fire next mm. time so i'm ready i'm ready for it <laughs> All right. Adding to my reading list. How about you, Shay? What are you reading right now? So I'm dragging on one book just because I don't want it to end. And I've just recently started another one. The first one is Shouting in the Fire. Mm -hmm. It is a book written by Dante Stewart. And it is just so brilliant. And as June is speaking of, um, it it feels like I am reading my my native tongue, my these experiences. It's it's uh it's it's like a love letter to blackness as it finds itself in America. And it's, it's so it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Then the next one I'm reading, I just started it. Like literally it just showed up um, like a couple days ago. God is a black woman by Christina Cleveland. And I know the name is pretty shocking. Um, but the reason why it's so delicious is, and she's somebody who was a former um, columnist writer for Christianity Today. It, she's a black woman. I know, I know. <laughs> and and she had to go through her own reconstruction, deconstruction process because the anti-blackness that we all are fed, you don't have to be black. You don't have to be white to be fed anti-black. You have to be human. <laughs> we are all fed anti-blackness. Yeah. And then all of our other hatreds for other people are your standard deviations from, you know what I mean? Blackness or white. It's, it's crazy, but it's a book that she goes on a pilgrimage. You can tell she goes on a pilgrimage to find value in who she is and recognizing that she's been praying to the altar of white Jesus, white male Jesus wow. for 
her whole being. And in doing so, she had to shut off a whole, all these parts of her. So to learn how no longer to walk around and live in this fragmented state in order to comply. And the worst part is no matter if you comply, you still ain't complying enough because you're still black and a woman. <laughs> so it's it seems to be a book that I'm going to love. One of her quotes is she goes, when she recognized, she with the whole Trump election, she's like, what I recognize at first, it didn't shock me that racism was there because she's like, oh yeah, the church been racist. She said, but when he came against white femininity and everybody was right, she goes, that's when she recognized she, her gender and her race were two things that were very important and that were being um, assaulted because she's like, there's nothing that white America holds up more than white femininity. She said, it's a fruit of the spirit. <laughs> so when she saw that fruit being attacked, she was like, oh, I think I need to rearrange a whole bunch of things that I have been living under. So those are the two books. Wow. Oh, wow. I've got some reading to do. All right. What song are you playing on repeat, Shay? Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Oh my God. Um, the song that I'm playing on repeat in the last two days has been, um, hold on. Uh, I just have to look it up if you don't mind. Go June. So besides, besides Coco Melon, right? <laughs> For my one-year-old. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, so I've been playing over and over the Encanto, uh, soundtrack. Oh, it's so good. And, um, can I give a shout out to my, my sister-in-law, Sarah Kang? She's a, musician, songwriter, Korean American. I've been playing her songs as well. Uh, we play her every time. Nice. You know, we don't have guests a lot. We try to keep as safe as possible. But when we do have guests over, uh, we play her music. And it's funny because I'll play uh, her tracks on like uh, TV we got at home and like her image shows up, her album image. And my mm -hmm. daughter recognizes her. And we'll start pointing her at her auntie and pointing and like start waving. And it's the cutest thing. And it's like, she doesn't do that oh for any of the God. other album covers or any other person on the TV, but she'll start oh. doing that. Oh, oh, that's my auntie. And she's one year old and she recognizes her. So yeah, I, I, we play her all the time at our house. Our sister-in-law mainstay, Sarah Kang, shout out to her. And Shay, did you find your song, Shay? I did. So the, the and I don't know why I paused. So I've been, the two things that have been on repeat is this uh, artist named Wynn Starks. He has this album called Black is Golden. I think he might be even from North Carolina. Um, it's just such a brilliant album. That's been on repeat. And then my one default song that has nothing to do with Win Starks is by Eve, the rapper who used to be a part of Rough Riders, and it's called Tambourine. And girl, that song just like <laughs> shake your tambourine. I don't know. I just want to shake my tambourine all over the gym. <laughs> <laughs> I'm adding that to my workout list now too. Okay. What's the best TV show or movie you've seen recently? If I'm honest, I have some things that I want to talk about at another time, but um, I think uh, an epic recent story that I have been caught up in is Yellowstone. Okay. I, I have it. Everyone keeps telling me to watch it. So, all right. How about you, June? Uh, my wife and I, we recently, we're late to the party, but we finished Squid Game, which oh. I know everybody's been talking about it. And it, I guess we came late, but it was as good, if not better, as everybody was saying. And just its, okay. it's take on 
classism and capitalism and it was it was a emotional oh my goodness incredible show an incredible okay show. Mm. yeah i need to rally for it my husband keeps saying let's watch it and i'm not sure emotionally it's i'm ready but very, we'll do it. yeah we'll i would do say it. it's very difficult to watch very uh gory but uh yeah. I, you know my <laughs> my wife and i when we watch shows she doesn't binge watch but if she likes something she'll say yeah, next episode, you got to click it. And I look at her like, <laughs> you know, we, we got work in the morning. Next one, next one. Go ahead, go ahead. That's what I, know she's like, I like Juliet. Yeah, that's her stamp of approval. And for that show, Absolutely. yeah, we got we went through it fast. Oh, man. Shay, what is your mantra right now? What are you saying to yourself on repeat? That I can do this. Yes. Hmm. How about you, June? Uh, my, my theme for this year has been boldness. So be mm. bold. What is an unpopular opinion you hold? I mean, I don't know if it's unpopular anymore, um, but it's, you know, it's not that stereotypes. It's like that Chimande Ediche um, uh, TED talk. You know, it's not that stereotypes are wrong. It's that they're incomplete. Mm. And so do black people like listening to loud music as a whole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. You know, so I, I think that I'm, I am not, I don't run away from believing the validity in certain stereotypes. Like I used to, I used to um, feel like I had to run away from it and, and disprove it. But what I was really trying to do was prove that my value was bigger than the stereotype. So I hated the fact that my father, I come from a broken family. My father has 15 children with 15 different women. My, I'm from the Bahamas, you know, and, and I hate it. And I attended white boarding schools in the United States of America and Europe. And I hated that I, my life sounded like a trope. I hated that my life sounded like um, a story that had been iterated over and over again. But here's the truth. Are there a lot of families without a black father in the family? Yeah, they are. But that's not the complete story. That's mm. not the whole story. The whole story is there are a lot of wonderful fathers who are showing up too, or a lot of those fathers who are not showing up weren't even given an, a chance almost out of the womb to show up. Mm. You know, So I think the unpopular belief is I'm less inclined to run away from the validity of stereotypes and I'm more inclined to consider the totality of the story that got them there. Thank you, Shay. Wow. How about you, June? What's an unpopular opinion you hold? I've come to find, uh, as I'm thinking through and rethinking through my own faith, I think the conversation has largely been taken up by here are white evangelicals and then here are deconstructionists. But my unpopular opinion is that I think this is a binary and it's, it's, it's a polarity that is not fair to, for example, in my own church, there are Korean American Christians who care deeply about racial justice and immigration mm -hmm. and also uh, hold uh, to the Bible as their authority, uh, their guiding mm -hmm. authority. And I think if we're just talking about here are white evangelicals who hold these theological beliefs and then everyone else who is deconstructing, Mm -hmm. That is centering a very particular perspective instead of looking at, well, there are different intersections 
of Christians who can hold a range of different beliefs, who may be deconstructing, but also still feel strongly about these things and these three things that may not make sense to far right or far left. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I All love right. it. Let's close it out. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Easy for me, my mother. And I know that sounds so like um, trite, but she made me believe from a young age that I was special, that I, I had something to bring this world. It, it, the truth is it's nothing, anything unique to me. <laughs> it's, it's to everybody, but I took it on and I took it in. And so she inspires me because I see myself as she sees me. And it's pretty remarkable. Mm. What a gift. How about you, Jim? Oh, I, I can say very, and it's easy for me too, Shay. Um, my wife, my daughter, for sure. And mm -hmm. as of late, as I'm rethinking through faith, uh, Brown Jesus. That's all, I, that's mm. all I'm going to say on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Shay, June, it has been an honor. Thank you so much for your time, sharing of your heart and of your life. Um, I'm a better person because of it. And I know everyone who listens to this conversation will be too. So very grateful. As we wrap up, Shay, where can people find you? You can find me on um, Instagram under uh, the Shay Show, Shay Bear. My name is spelled differently. It's the C-H-A. But that's really where you can find me. It will take you to my website or whatever, any any mode that you need to connect with me. Wonderful. There. How about you, Jen? Uh, yep. Instagram is for my long essay-like pieces. <laughs> That's a very mm. carefully constructed stuff. And then Twitter is like my real-time live thoughts. That's like stuff that just goes from my fingers straight to the phone. And then uh, I have a Facebook, but I would say Facebook is where I'm least myself because the level of comments and messages I get there now, it's a whole different level that I, I my mental health, I'm saying no to that now. So Facebook is like kind of the safe page. Yep. Uh, Instagram is my thought pieces and Twitter is me live and in real time. Awesome. I'll make sure to put all those links into the show notes. Well, thank you again. It has been a gift that we'll keep on giving. I appreciate you both immensely. Thank you so much for joining us today. We need to normalize and welcome the inevitable and often awkward experience of change and growth. We can do that when we stop trying to be perfect and do perfect and instead admit we don't know it all and engage with others by really listening. Shay and June modeled the power of sharing their stories of experience at work, in their respective families, and online. And when we really listen to the lived experience of others and deepen our relationships with them, our hearts transform. And that's the kind of change I want. How are you engaging meaningfully with the lives and needs of others around you? And what stands out to you from today's roundtable? And where in your life do you need to grow and change, especially around those who have differences from you? When you commit to learning and growing, you also benefit from taking a hard look at the burdens you carry that weigh down your capacity to change your mind and your ways of thinking and doing with confidence and clarity. This is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence 
clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action, but also during times of growth and change. Now, finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. Now, when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate the inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions, the unburdened leader coaching is for you, where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I cannot wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for The Unburdened Leader weekly email, find this episode, show notes, and other free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 